Hey, I'm Nicole Ashley Fletcher, and here we are in another week together contemplating the precious and mysterious things of God. Thank you to each of you reaching out and sharing little bits and pieces of why you're tuning in and how God is moving and growing inside of you. One listener from Scotland actually shared how the content and the message of God's grafting story has allowed her to get to know his horticultural symbolism for the first time, while also helping to pastor some friends going through the adoption process. I'm thinking about all of you, you know, the ones coming alongside family and friends and members of your congregations, trying to help them carry a load that can often be too much to bear alone. As someone with some very important and wonderful burden carriers in her life, going through a process that can sometimes feel like stumbling in the dark of somebody else's house, (laughs) I thank you. And I pray for supernatural wisdom and insight, care and listening ears as you bolster and come alongside those you love. Well, let's get into another important piece of the grafted garden that we're planting this season and talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. It's mystical stuff, so let's get to it. Here is chapter seven of a grafting story, The Spirit of Sonship. Many of us see adoption simply as a way some choose to grow their family here on earth. But God sees adoption as our divine heritage, how every person who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord becomes a member of the bloodline of heaven itself and becomes grafted into His family tree. So while this is the oldest story of all time, it's becoming new all over again for us. May it become so for you, too. I'm Nicole Ashley Fletcher. Welcome to A Grafting Story, a retelling of God's adopted family and a new telling of ours. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, But you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies and confirms with our spirit, assuring and reassuring us that we are God's children. Romans 8, 14-16 Well, this has been a wild time. I know that people listen to and find podcasts at many different times. So in case you're not sure what time I'm referring to, we are eight months into a global pandemic that no one in over a hundred years has seen or imagined. Technology has become a necessity for much of our connection. Gaps in systems that were already broken have been even more deeply revealed and the chasms widened. Our planet continues to groan and ache, its wounds that we have inflicted upon her bleeding out in the form of climate change, extinction, and an alarming lack of biodiversity that creates the perfect environment for disease and disaster. 
Our job as human beings was always to steward the land and then to grow deep roots in the promised land, knowing that as we've explored already, our connection to the land is not just metaphor, but our dirt to human forming reality. But we do to the land what we do to one another. We take and abuse. We assume we're invincible and and impervious. And our relationship to the land runs parallel to our relationship with humanity because we are the land and the land is us. This is some of what I'm learning these days from my indigenous teachers whose worldview looks much more like the biblical worldview than the Western one I grew up with and am slowly untangling from. Honor and dignity are not in titles, PhDs, or bank accounts, but in families. The wisdom of elders pouring generously into the next generation, both of people and of the land and resources those people inherit. Elevating father and mother roles to something that's more in line with heaven's paradigm. Biblical scholar Trevor Burke, in his very detailed study of Paul's adoption metaphor, says this, God as adopted father is the sole authority and initiative in salvation. The crown jewel of Pauline metaphor is adoption into the family and household of God the Father. So even though God is too big, of course, to be described by just one image or metaphor or name, God the Father and us as children continues to be a primary relationship example, both within the Trinity of God and in powerful parables like the prodigal son, maybe rivaled only by the marriage metaphor of Christ and his bride, the church. So even though I could personally stay in John 15 forever talking about Jesus as the vine and us as the branches, it would be a huge miss to not only talk about God the Father, but about this curious passage in Romans 8 that refers to the spirit of sonship. Now this refers to the Holy Spirit, but why would Paul use that term? Where does it come from and how can it speak to us? not just for our learning, but I believe for our transformation in the here and now. Well, first of all, if you're like me, maybe you've already considered this question. But when I heard this originally, I thought, well, I didn't receive the spirit of sonship because I'm a daughter. So I'll just read it, the spirit of daughtership. Unfortunately, that would actually miss a lot of the power of the meaning Father and son names and images are important in their historical and cultural context because women at the time, they didn't have any rights. I mean, your entire livelihood was linked to a man, your father, your brother, your husband, your sons, all of your present protection and your future inheritance. So when Paul declares in Galatians 3.28 that there is no longer male or female, but all are one in Christ, that's a big deal. The spirit of sonship gives both men and women the same magnificent rights and privileges that sons were known to inherit. 
it was a revolutionary and completely countercultural phenomenon to suggest that women could have their own relationship with God the Father, daughters of God being given the same rights and privileges as sons of God. You know, if Paul had said, you who are men receive the spirit of sonship and you who are women receive the spirit of daughtership, our Canadian brains would be very satisfied by proper pronouns. But our theology would be anemic and our relationship to God the Father disproportionately skewed to the patterns of the world. So just so you know, whenever you hear me say son or sonship, insert everything you just learned, okay? So first of all, it's important to note that adoption was very common in Roman culture. Many of the Roman emperors you might have read about in history, like Tiberius, Marcus Aurelius, and Nero, were all adopted into the almost royal lineages of their families in order to secure nations, to pass down wealth, and carry on the prestigious name and the power that went along with them. So what about these full rights and privileges of adoption to sonship? Like, what does that actually look like in the Roman cultural context that Paul was writing in? Well, the first privilege of sonship was intimate relationship. Let's just look at the Israelites, for example. You know, they went from being a people... Uh, you know, referring to Yahweh as the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And they made a transition to God, our father. And when God is your father, you call him affectionately Abba. It's a family term like daddy used by both children and adults to express intimacy And the early church knew it was able to address God this way because Jesus had invited his disciples to do so. What he did, they modeled as his discipleship. So Abba is a Jesus term. And scholars note, interestingly, that it's not just about affection and intimacy, but even more fully a cry of total dependency, more like a baby that cries for its nursing mother. Anyone who is a mom of young children uh, knows what hearing mama one million times at every hour of the day or night in unregisterable decibels sounds like. And Abba sounds like that. Well, the second major privilege was a family name. We've often heard it's not what you know, but who you know. Well, your family name stamped upon you protection esteem, and a powerful new motive towards honor. You know, our our adoptive relationship, as scholars say, to God as Father should provide the motive as well as the power for authentic holy living. We can't talk about rights and privileges without also talking about responsibility, because with protection and intimacy and dependence, family likeness is developed and an internal motivation to honor and uphold that family name is born as well. And the last major privilege of sonship was inheritance. Everything your father had was yours. His legacy, his wealth, his reputation and power. And the wild part is that for us who become children of God, our inheritance is God himself. 
Another thing we have to consider is an important difference between uh, the different kinds of sonship. So uh, between firstborn sons and only begotten sons. Well, in Exodus 4, 22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. And in Hosea 11, he does the same. So God seems to be referencing Israel, God's chosen people, to be a light to the nations and a blessing to all people, showing them the Lord God Almighty, his firstborn son. And this alludes to the fact that God will have more sons. Firstborn sons, they received a double portion of everything. They were the heir, and in Israel's case, were sanctified and consecrated, set apart to serve and worship in God's temple courts. You were highly favored. Which as we learn, you know, like in the outworking of this, in many broken family situations in the biblical narrative, it doesn't always work out that way. Inheritances are stolen. Fathers favor youngest sons and brothers kill brothers. But there's another term of sonship used in scripture other than the highly esteemed firstborn, and that is begotten. Maybe you've heard John 1.16, one of the most recognizable and quotable verses in scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever might believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So just to be clear, God just had one biological or begotten son, and that is Jesus Christ. From a narrative, uh, like a creation narrative, we're all God's sons and daughters, but because of the fall, we now need to be reborn and there's only one way back into the family and that's adoption. Scholar Trevor Burke puts it so beautifully this way, there is only one who qualifies as a natural son and that is Jesus. We are sons by grace. He is a son by nature. So for those who call themselves children of God and and you're wondering how it's possible to love an adopted child as though they were your very own flesh and blood, look first to Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, who set the example for us. So given all that we know about sonship and the centrality of it to the human experience, just try to soak this in. The only begotten son the firstborn among creation, the one that rightfully deserves the full inheritance, lays down not only his life, but his sonship, the privileges, the honor, the access, the power, the intimacy on the cross so that we could become children of his father too. Jesus cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? so that we get to now cry out, Abba, to ours.
We cannot relate to and believe in a God who we approach as Father without the spirit of sonship, the working of the Holy Spirit in us. God doesn't say to us in Romans 8, once you have believed in Jesus, you will receive sonship. We receive the spirit of sonship, which is the necessary and impossible to miss third person of the Trinity that makes our adoption and transformation as children of God final and familial. The spirit of God is called by a few names throughout scripture, like the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might in Isaiah 11, the spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4, the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10, the spirit of truth in John 14, and the spirit of wisdom in Ephesians 1. But the spirit of God is introduced in Romans 8 in this new profoundly personal term to point to a truth we cannot miss. Paul doesn't refer to the spirit as a force, power, or even a characteristic of God or the presence of God. But he he actually personifies the spirit in a familial relationship for us to see him clearly as one who prays, testifies, confirms, and intercedes. We are not left to declare ourselves adopted and then be the ones to remind ourselves over and over about our state. We don't have a God who was present once or twice and then became an absent father for the remainder of our child and adulthood. We have God in us to parent us, which means helping, defending, protecting, nurturing us, encouraging, disciplining, teaching, and guiding us, delighting in us, and reassuring us with loving affection that we can indeed be totally dependent on him. And this reassurance that Paul highlights as a major job of the spirit is helpful because we're often up against other spirits, whether human, worldly, or demonic, that seek to testify against us to ravage and tear down our godly identity, our sonship which comes with all of the power and privileges of heaven. So we need reminding and reassuring on an ongoing basis. I want to just take a second and look at a few of these antagonistic forces. And as we do, I just invite the Holy Spirit, the the spirit of sonship to protect our hearts and minds and to put a divine hand on anything he wants us to pay attention to. Well, the first is a spirit of fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And this is a really important distinction to make when we're talking about parenting, whether from a theological parenting perspective, like God parenting us, or our earthly families. Because fear is born bred and multiplied through punishment. And this is different, by the way, than discipline or consequence. (laughs) You're punished for not being good enough, for not doing it right, for not knowing the answer, for being bad. And this shame-inducing parenting strategy suggests that love is conditional based on whether or not you perform or keep it together or prove your worthiness, mistakes 
well, they lead to failure. And failure, that leads to punishment. And punishment leads to fear. And fear haunts and follows, not as a cheerleader and coach believing in the growth before you, but as a grim reaper ready to cover the grave before you. But 2 Timothy 1.7 is clear that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound and disciplined mind. And when the spirit of sonship reveals what God says in Isaiah 43, do not be afraid, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It is literally love driving out the fear of punishment so that little sprouts will have a chance to blossom and bear fruit, not wither and die. So do you agree with the spirit of fear in your life? Do you relate to God that way or even to your own children? Let the spirit of sonship speak to you instead. The second is an orphan spirit. And the internal narrative of someone wrestling through this might sound something like, no one willingly takes care of me. I must look after myself. I'm alone and on my own in this world. I can't really trust or rely on anyone but me. And truthfully, I could cry a thousand tears because this for me is the spirit that has been the most resilient antichrist in my life over the years. I'm sure that there's a link there between this spirit and those who have faced parental loss of some kind, whether through death, trauma, adoption, or emotional unavailability. I have fought these lies, you know, even this last week as I'm writing this, I combat it often reading about Jesus as the good shepherd who is not a hired hand who sees trouble and then abandons his sheep, but he fights for them and takes care of them. He nurtures their growth with good food and quiet places to sleep, thank God. And so I am learning to cast every trouble on him because he cares for me. I am not alone to fend for myself. I can be a dependent child as I am created to be. And he doesn't just give me enough so I can scrape by. For he is the father outlined in Matthew 7 as more generous than any earthly father, giving good gifts to those who ask him. So have you asked him? John 14 Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the world can't accept him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him. He lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Just picture this, when Jesus is telling this to his disciples, he realizes how lonely the world will be without him. How these men, many of who have actually like abandoned their careers and their families, 
who have spent all this time just living in the presence of God himself, how they'll feel abandoned without Jesus, without a father, unable to trust or rely on anyone in the world. They'll be orphans because the world will always claim to have our good, but it will always be a dictator, not a doting mother. So Jesus says to them and to us, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. But what does he mean by that? It is the gift of the advocate, the spirit of truth, the spirit of sonship right inside you. So do you agree with an orphan spirit of scarcity and never enough? Well, let the spirit of sonship speak to you instead. The last one that's on my heart to share is the spirit of darkness and despair. A phrase that you might have heard or that you might become familiar with is adoption is trauma. Our Christian adoption feeds and Pinterest boards can sometimes be full of, you know, hashtag adoption is joy and adoption is love and adoption is family or home, which are all incredibly true, of course, and also very much a part of a larger story. And a quote that rings in my bones often is one by Reverend Keith Griffith that says, adoption loss is the only trauma in the world where victims are expected by all of society to be grateful. This is why narratives being communicated to adoptive parents like, these children, they're so lucky and blessed to have you, is, I hope, (laughs) true (laughs) and sincere. But just imagine being a child growing up around those narratives all the time, like a stone wall of preemptory shame being built around you in case you ever dare to be sad, confused, or angry about the loss that brought you there. And while like all of our lives in many ways, there are narrative arcs that lead our story, we have to develop a good theology of grief, declaring adoption is trauma, coming alongside ourselves and then our children if we ever have a hope of then declaring adoption is love. But I also believe that we have a power inside of us that overcomes the world, that overcomes every darkness and despair and pain. And it's God himself Psalm 147 says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Romans 15, 13 says, the God of hope fills you with joy and peace so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. And Colossians 1, 16 says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are the living, breathing miracles of God, his children, who by patient parenting and everlasting love are becoming slowly, maybe, (laughs) less led astray by the spirits that once testified to us, the ones that testified that we were orphans, the ones that testified that we are beyond grace and that it would never get better, the ones that testified that we are abandoned and rejected. But we have a new testimony now. 
We have a new spirit assuring and reassuring us that we are God's children and that our legal adoption can never be undone. He already did the impossible thing. He made humans full of sin, clothed in death and filled with the spirit of darkness, his very own. He put his spirit inside of us. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit in Galatians 4 that said was sent into our hearts as the one who cries out, Abba, Father. The spirit of sonship stamps, seals, and signs us over as rightful heirs of God and who testifies, intercedes, and confirms over and over again as many times as you need, not just to our souls, but to our accusers every time, every time we face threats of any kind. So maybe you need some reassuring today. Maybe you know someone who needs some reassuring. Would you call out to Abba freely, affectionately, and in full dependency? Pray those scriptures we just read over yourself and your family and your church And may the spirit rise up in you with great increasing volume, testifying to your own soul and the souls of those under your care about the safety, love, and belonging you have secured as children of God through the blood of Jesus and testifying against anything that would say otherwise. In the name of Abba, our Father, Jesus the begotten one, and the spirit of sonship. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you learned something new and felt encouraged along the way. If you are interested in hearing more, subscribe and leave a review so the content and message of this story can be found by other curious listeners. I'd also love to connect with you about any questions to share resources or to hear your grafting story. So send me a message. You can do that online. I'm on Instagram at Nick Fletch or NicoleAshleyFletcher.com. But more than any of that, please share this personally with anyone you know who might need to hear it. I'll be praying for you as you do. I hope to be with you again very soon. And until then, bye for now.